Hello and welcome to Implants' Cafe. Today I'm here with none other than the, the man, the myth, the legend, the uh, the master of database stuff on lots of other stuff, Mark Nadal. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor. Yeah, it's good to have you on camera. You're making me hungry now with that uh, gracious gift of a, a big wrap you've got there. I did just get a breakfast burrito for everybody listening. You can be jealous and get the, the noms. And science says, if you believe in science, that you're more likely to enjoy and hear what I'm saying if you go eat food now rather than feeling hungry. So if you're feeling hungry, you should snack up right now rather than after the show. Yeah. So if anyone um, hasn't listened to the previous podcast, you probably should go and listen to that one now because this one might be a bit advanced, but I'm sure it'll still be a simulated conversation. But we're going to go deep into Mark's interests in topics like we've covered like freeism and zero-sum games and uh, all that kind of nice stuff. So rub your hands, get ready for this. For context, for um, other people, it really boils down to human psychology and how do we design systems that put treating people ethically first and is also a win for businesses and governments. How do you align the interests and the incentives of everybody so that way we can create more pro-social, happier places for us to live and exist? So I've been thinking about society as a whole we've been a bit our generation's been a bit luckily the last 30 years have been give or take a few things like Iraq and 9-11 we've had a really easy time with things but what I've seen is that society as a whole has really manned up grown up and become we've adapted very quickly to this horrible situation I believe people are just had to grow up in a new way that they've never had to grow up before Spot on. Um, a lot of people feel like 100 years ago was so long ago, but it really isn't. The fact that we're going through tens of millions of people dying over the world wars and some of the biggest depressions and then completely radically new technology like the atomic bomb transforming and putting fear into the everyday lives of individuals that at any moment when they're at school when they're playing on the beach they might have to drop and roll and shelter themselves because some alarm went off that um but what's fascinating is maybe as the world has got scarier industry and technology And just well-being, welfare, um, and quality of life also increased because we're able to use that technology to make people's lives better, to have constant supply of energy from nuclear power plants, to take a lot of technology that was commercialized and industrialized during the world wars and turn them into the airline industry. Um, not, not that that's exactly what happened, but a lot of the terrible things, and it doesn't justify the terrible things, did 
propel and accelerate society into the comforts, the pleasures, and the hedonism that we have now. And the privilege that a lot of people talk about how a lot of first world countries just exist in such, especially westernized countries, but as well as eastern countries, live in such wealth and luxury and riches. So, yeah, we've, we've had a good run for the last 30 years, minus some traumatic events. And maybe now we're going to have to reconsider that. Hopefully not. I hope that this pandemic just makes us stronger. But it certainly puts a good historical t- context um, in place for what's going on. Yeah, I hope we get a lot more serious in terms of like how we approach things like the news. We don't go back to just like on the front page, some celebrity has some problem with some dude, you know, now that like, like I said before in a few previous episodes, every day we're going through an episode that would be like a once in a year event or a once in a five year event. And it's daily, you know, like uh, Groundhog Day. So we, we can't go back to what it like was before and being so trivial about life. Like after this, I mean, guess look at the, look at the generation after World War Two. They weren't a trifling, you know, generation complaining generation after World War Two. They were really serious people. Well, this depends upon what you value, right? Do we want a Mad Max world of everybody sulking and nihilistic and depressed and working hard to survive. Certainly there's values in there of working hard and um, focusing on maybe um, what's important in life rather than hearing about the gossip of celebrities. Or do we want a society that lives in such a post-scarce setting that what's news and trauma to us is some celebrity breaking up? I, if I had to choose between the two, my instinct right now is I would rather live in the world where there's celebrity gossip because it means that hopefully things are good enough for everybody else that we don't have to feel constantly traumatized. But a lot of people feel even more traumatized in that type of capitalistic society. And then another question, which is pulling back up to kind of humanity as a whole across the globe is are humans biologically even able to adapt to post-scarce settings without inventing new drama and crises that even if we had all of our needs taken care for us would we just start having mental breakdowns and crying because we don't know how to deal with that type of environment. That's something that I've been facing during this um, this uh, shelter-in-place, locked-in-our-homes time. I'm used to that. I'm a stay-at-home dad that works <laughs> all the time. Um, and so I'm used to not leaving, but I'm certainly noticing increased mental health issues with all of my friends who historically have had enough paychecks and savings in their bank account that they're privileged from their previous jobs that they could survive months on end being locked in place and they can't cope with it. So now it's kind of challenging me on, well, are we as humans even designed for this? So kind of 
what are our values? Um, what are we going to try and prioritize and what is important? That's like both a collective question about humanity and also an individual question. I think what what compounds this the most is that those people that are psychologically finding it difficult, like a lot of people are, is that normally they would get together, have a laugh, play some games, you know, chill out, read a barbecue, but this is when you need that the most, you can't do it, which is like different from all other traumatic experiences in the last 150 odd years. Ignoring the Spanish flu. Yeah, talking to an introvert. So I'm glad that you're bringing up <laughs> these points. Um, you're right, because Al, I've been getting out to nature hikes and parks. And from my understanding, that's fine. Please correct me if I'm wrong about that. And that has been very useful. But I'm noticing that as an introvert, my implicit bias here was that I'm alone out on a nature hike and so I'm enjoying myself um, and, and I I probably need to recognize right that that's probably very different for extroverts who it's not so much the getting out part that they could go to a park or a forest um, but you're right it's actually sitting close to somebody else and having a conversation so help me actually maybe explore this a little bit is standing six feet away from somebody during a barbecue or having a dialogue, how much does that impact an extrovert's uh, psyche? Well, we can't even do do that, I think. We, we can't have a barbecue indoors. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> unless you have some very good air filtration system, you know. Um, so, I mean, if, you, if we could have barbecues with neighbours and things and that was safe, you know, that would be fine even to stand six feet away. I mean, I'm normally sitting six feet away from people anyway in the coffee shop. Well, if it's really busy, then three feet away. So, um. This is interesting because there's a large work-from-home shift and a lot of people in my industry are talking about how this is going to result in an economic revolution even if people are antsy to get back to their physical job and sit in their seat in their open air cubicles or their <laughs> closed off cubicles. And, but how, you know, but how much of a psychological mental health effect is this going to have on people? How many if, of middle-class individuals out there already have jobs that they can do remotely, whether that be, um, client consulting that mostly is phone work, uh, programmers who are able to code, um, video editors and audio editors and podcasters versus how many people, and, and, and I'm not trying to single out middle class because I'm trying to ignore um, other individuals, but I'm curious how much of the economy already could function in a work from home remote setting, but mental health issues, right? They can't psychologically handle it. Because that says something about us as a species, right? Yeah, I think there's always been a bias against remote working because it's hard to trust people. But I think that's been been shattered because I'm getting I'm getting through just as much work, if not more, at home than I was when I was commuting in London. Um, to my client so and the team 
you know, there's, there's certain hardware things that I, we can't do because we need these certain devices to test on, but that can be um, mitigated at some point if, it's, if it gets that much of a pain point. So but what, what's annoying for me is that when I was uh, I travel, I can't travel, so I'm used to working remote in different countries. So whether it's going to be Scotland, Vienna, or or other countries, even America, I've worked remote in America before. So for me, as an international traveller who's got a lot of friends and things I like to do around the world, I was even supposed to come to LA uh, this summer and do some some podcasts. So uh, that's all been out the window. So for me, it's just like okay, it's, I mean, it's okay. I'm pretty I'm pretty chill out, you know, in, in Vienna. So. Yeah, we were supposed to meet, hopefully, yeah. when you're out here in California. So research that I've looked at, um, and if people want links, tag me later and I can pull them up, uh, shows that commute contributes the most to people's uh, depression because of traffic and all the unpleasant things associated with it. But I do feel like the, the science should be doing a research right now with people working from home, how much that is affecting their uh, depression, even <laughs> if they're getting more work done, right? So <laughs> I don't know if we've had, like you've stated earlier, um, a very good control, scientifically speaking, to to look at a comparative uh, a comparison because for a very long time now, we haven't had to be locked in our homes. Yeah. I'm just going to kill the camera because there's, there's something funny with the the camera there on your end. Do you want me to cut off yeah, the camera? Yeah, so... we, can, we can try to add, add it back a bit later on. Um. So now I kind of want to move forward into some of these issues around work from home, human psychology, um, our response as a species, our value statements, and what are changes that we can make and do that promote all of those things in response to not just the pandemic that's happened, but also the historical understanding um, of pandemics in the past, wars in the past, um, accelerated and good times in the past, and the conflict that exists now in a hyper-connected, hyper-social media media, internet, webbed world. Um, which kind of of those subjects do you want to touch first? Um, yeah, I'd say the, the conflicts now. In the future. What was that, sorry? Is work from home. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now, yeah. I've got a train running above me sometimes, so for people listening... Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's an underground that goes overground in this apartment complex I'm in. So, yeah, that's what the noise is <laughs> every five minutes. What, if work from home, as I claim, is the future, and that is inevitably where society is going to move towards, how does that conflict potentially with people's well-being and their psyche. So I, I have some pretty opinionated statements here. Um, is that is that a subject that's interesting in contrast to um, discussing how we respond to such a pandemic or w what are the value judgments that are being made during this pandemic? It's all interesting for me. Okay. 
then I think I'm going to jump into the values judgment. So <laughs> on pandemic responses, but it, the it does look like the greatest group that's at risk are the elderly. So society choice, right? But it's just calling out the implicit values in society. Is society has choose to sacrifice the economy for the sake of the health and well-being of the elderly. And that is an extremely legitimate and good um, value judgment to make. A lot of people don't necessarily are not necessarily aware of why these decisions are being made though. And so it's oftentimes useful to spell it out. But there's an implicit subtext there, which is it assumes that there is not a group of people able to survive an economic collapse. And what's interesting is that the people who are making these larger policy decisions are usually older, wealthier, and more established. So I'm not trying to say throw old people under the bus for an economically underprivileged group. Ideally, we could find a combination of both, but I do want to call out for a lot of us kind of privileged, um, privileged middle class or above individuals is well, what about people who cannot pay their rent doing that dead-end job that they hate Every week, flipping burgers or um, whatever it might be. And hey, if you're flipping burgers because you love flipping burgers, I, I apologize. That's not many of my yeah. friends who had to do that. That is the reason. Now, there's obviously been other rulings in different countries stating that landowners cannot kick people out as a result of um, not being able to pay rent. But there's certainly a values judgment that it is cheaper or more utilitarian to put a burden on everybody. Welfare is good enough. That then puts extreme burden on the poor, cheaper way to mitigate the risk for the elderly. In contrast to another option that we could have done, spent, at least in the United States, with the two to $6 trillion stimulus uh, package, what if we had spent $2 trillion on creating a program to shelter and take preventive action of all individuals 55 years or older? And it's not that they're mandatorily forced to do it, People could opt out of it, but if they opt out of it from a government standpoint or from a policy standpoint, that would then be potentially them risking their lives where we could say, hey, we're going to take everybody from age 55 and older and we're going to move them into a resort condominium where we're going to give you food daily. We're going to give you entertainment daily. We're going to shelter you in place. Now, obviously, if something breaks out in those um, in that resort, that could be really bad. We've already seen that happen um, at nursing homes. But 
even those things can be mitigated. So as a society, what are the things that we value? What are the decision-making processes? And potentially, who are the people that we are adding additional burden to that we may not even be aware of? Side on any of this, I'm just trying to spell out the options that could exist, might exist, and ask people collectively to to contemplate um, their biases, including mine. Yeah, that uh, shelter-in-place ideas, that's not the first time I've heard of that, actually. A student friend of mine actually proposed that, a young guy. That's bias for us young people, right? To say, lock up the old people! <laughs> Um, so there's there's certainly a disservice there. In psychology, and I'm not the, the expert in this, but my colleagues are, so we have these discussions all the time. This is called the trolley dilemma, right? If there is a train track and there is six people on the train... On one side of um, a lever that switches where this train or trolley is going to go, and there's three people tied up on the track on the right side of the switch, and somehow magically, we don't know why these people are tied up, and you're able to throw the lever, <laughs> um, and somehow you're magically not able to run over and help save the people. And psychologists love creating these strange <laughs> conditions that force very morbid um, questions. What happens? Are you going to throw the lever? Are you going to throw the lever um, based off of your assumption of taking action creates moral responsibility versus not taking action makes you not morally culpable? So it's very different if if the trolley dilemma has the track set by default, to go kill the six people, right? Um, versus the track set, by default, to kill the three people. Again, these are like morbid, disturbing, um, unsettling ideas to think about. So please don't think that me and these psychologists are some sort of, I mean, maybe some of them are sadists, but the, <laughs> that's not the, the goal. Um, because now when we're in a, a situation of a pandemic like this, we have to either not throw the lever or throw the lever and people get very heated about this. So if we maybe previously had a discussion about it, um, it'd be easier to come to consensus on it. So a lot of people, from my understanding, is if the train track is set to kill the three people by default, they would feel like, oh, well... I didn't create the situation. I wasn't involved in this situation. And me even touching the lever, especially if it would switch it to kill six people, like I'm not morally culpable or responsible for this. So they turn a blind eye. But if it was by default set to kill the six people, it's more difficult for people because they they – they know that if they don't just throw the lever, four people are going to die. But then at the same time, then they feel morally responsible for killing three people. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess we are a situation where we haven't had enough time to to make research that shows sort of long term what these various economic things that we're doing or medical things that we're doing we're just we're all kind of thrown in the deep end, and there wasn't enough time for this research pandemic research to be to be done in a serious way. I mean, that has research been done, but not on the scale that should have been done. I guess we're getting into incentives. Uh, which we discussed quite a bit last time. During good times, there's not an incentive to deal with emergency situations. Now there's some level of emergency situations that happen frequently enough, um, like fires, especially when the buildings were built out of wood. Yeah. But Why did Americans build even, their houses out of wood? I don't know. Hey, I thought it was the London fire <laughs> that that completely transformed the, a, a lot of Western um, policies around having um, better infrastructure to fight fires. I mean, there was a Chicago fire that also destroyed a lot, but my understanding is the London fire was a, a big piece to that, right? Sure, yeah. Um, I don't think U.S. U.S., if they use wood, it has to be treated to be fireproof. So that's long gone. I just mean in the context of history. But of course, here's something that's very interesting is you don't see brass um, brass anymore because people think that like, oh, it's a very 60s, 70s look. A brass is not classy, doesn't, you know, it's not nice looking like stainless steel or aluminum or something like that. And so for reasons thought to be aesthetics and design, we have a lot of stainless steel doorknobs now, but most diseases and especially COVID has like a 72 hour lifespan on steel. But brass is, if I might be mixing it up with um, another material, brass is self um, self-immune, it, it, like it, it, it's self-cleansing. I think because it has some sort of uh, um, base electrical charge. Uh, please look into that. I'm not trying to. Um, I just know that there was this particular material that was chosen. I think 50ish years ago because it prevented disease spread because the material itself was um, antibacterial. Oh, really? we got cool. so used to that. Right, we got so used to that that people forgot about it, and or if people knew about it, good times were happening. So we were like, "Hey, I would rather create a better user experience of something that looks nice or maybe feels nicer to our customers than using this thing." Because hey, we haven't had a pandemic in X number of years. So how much of of society's preparedness against pandemics? is forgotten lore of things that have gone wrong in the past because things are now good. How much of it is maintaining well-being versus fighting off? So now, as a human species, this is going back to my question of, are we even designed to handle post-scarce good time settings without having mental breakdowns and and self-destructing ourselves. I hope not. Um, 
But we seem to be very fickle and emotional. And every four years during a U.S. presidential election, forget what the last one or the one before that or the one before that was like. Why are we this way? Is it an intentional development of our values as people that we then build into literally physical buildings and society and civilizations and the policies and the social norms that we have? Or is this our biological functioning that there is nihilism that we we can never hope to make progress? Is hope possible? Is progress possible? These are important questions that we have to answer. And I'm an optimist, as you know from my last call, and I think the answer is yes. But a lot of people are willing to recognize it because they would rather that the good times we live in is a fundamental property of the universe and nature. So that way they don't, trolley dilemma, feel morally culpable if they don't donate or help homeless people or people. Or vice versa, if the world is traumatizing and painful and um, stressful and survival of the fittest, we want to accept that as a fact so that way we can be greedy and fight for our own survival and or not become naive or do good things for people or that we can have the same sort of pessimistic judgment. What's your take? Well, I'm I'm still young enough that my sort of bias towards the right or the left is still sort of being able to be swayed slightly particularly by podcast guests. Um, so you should check out my, listen to the episode I did, I did um, with um, this uh, Mark. That was quite a, an interesting one. Um, so I think that our current society is sort of good for breeding people that are sort of tough-minded, you know, th- when society is so hard pressurized on you financially, it sort of makes you tough to get to that point where you're comfortable. Otherwise, it just continually weighs down on you. So by the time you get to a comfortable place, you're sort of already turned into a sort of hard person that's like sort of Scrooge-like. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. Honestly, I've been going through fighting that recently. But that's that's a whole separate um, bandwagon. I'm sure there's a lot of people going through that uh, right now with the, the pandemic. Go on. There's a lot of people right now. So yeah. carry on. Yeah, I mean, I also, also feel bad when, when I see, you know, if I see my, ourselves doing well, and but yeah, there's, you know that a whole large part of the world is still developing and finding it hard. It's kind of hard to enjoy the so-called wealth. And um, I mean, I, I know we all can look down on the Chinese food markets there and blame them and say, you know, these people don't care about their the, the responsibility. But if you're in that situation and that's the only way to make money, then the risk of a global pandemic is <laughs> not very f- close to your mind. And uh, as a result of just, um, I mean, it's, in a sense, the world has used China just to, to have cheap goods and then when when uh, when it backfires on us, 
then we blame China. Up oh, that classic PR campaign around mercantilism, consumerism, human maximalism, and environmentalism. These are all trigger words, right? But I think it's good to explore our biases is that a lot of people in a third world country are just trying to survive. And from a Western perspective, we might look at trash on their streets as them just being so disrespectful of the environment and self-destroying their society because they don't have a sense of um, purity or or in self-respect to themselves and to the planet. So it's easy as a Westerner to judge that these third world countries are in poverty because of how they treat their environment and because their economy. Um, on the flip side, there's people, um, especially with that movie that came out recently uh, um, called Parent, that at inverse, what, sorry, living what was, in what the was it called? Parasite. Parasite, I right. Probably. Or if they're interested, maybe just watch one of the commentaries on YouTube that's 18 minutes. Because for me, when I saw the trailer, like, it, I, it was, it was just spooky, right? And I don't know if I could, um, I don't know if I could handle watching two hours of, of just that type of intense content. If, if, and, and and maybe that's because it makes me uncomfortable in, in my Western um, privilege. So you to have the disgruntled masses that then look up at anybody who owns a car, makes more than $20,000 as an individual. I'm not even talking about – sorry, even as a family, okay? And not just as an individual but as a family. And that – pretty much puts you in the top 1% of the world's wealth. If, if you own a car, um, I, th I think the exact number that I last saw was around 36 um, or 32. I'm, I'm using 20K because in the U.S., that's generally speaking, been considered poverty line. But the issue is, even though the U.S. doesn't really have universal health care, um, if you exist in poverty line, you – you don't even get access to a lot of welfare programs because you're not poor enough. Um, you kind of have to be in the 0 .001. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but you have to be it, – it's not like if you're in the 1% um, of, of most impoverished people, you, you get access to stuff, or even the you know, 50%. You have to be some sort of extreme outlier. But I'm trying to then paint this picture that – and yes, there's living standard differences, but what is considered poverty line in the U.S. from a welfare perspective is is considered as rich, snobbery wealth to, I think it's 80% of the world that makes less than $10 per month. Now, I know $10 in those countries goes farther, but I... 
lot of what I try and do is not just question other people's perspectives, um, but I, I try and question my own perspective and my own, my own upbringing, right? And I, and, I, and I try to put myself in the shoes or not shoes because they can't afford shoes of other people's perspectives, both billionaires and people who are making less than $10 a month. And then try and figure out what are the values that I would have, what are the emotional reactances that I would have in all of these settings. And I recognize that a lot of my presumptions as a middle class or above um, Western American white male uh, are so loaded and biased compared to poverty line U.S. or even the the wealthy class of a third world country. Yeah. I'm a little bit here. I'm I, gonna, think, I'm gonna... I think when you when when nobody has money and you're on ten barrels ten barrels a day. I'm thinking too much about oil. <laughs> ten dollars or less a day. There's no barrier between you. There's no sort of barriers of, of wealth in a sense like it's you're it's very easy to relate to people there's very there's not much agenda behind conversations um but then again they're, they're going to be used to being sort of downtrodden by the rich you know there's not going to be consumer rights in those kind of societies strong law and people will be just be kind of it would be hard to see change or change in uh, the status quo because when money when you when it's ten dollars a day, then people with money are kings basically compared to you. Right, and so in which settings do we value human maximalism, environmentalism, mercantilism, capitalism, or socialism? Um, each one of those economic systems has a certain assumption of whether it promotes people or promotes the environment. And capitalism promotes, um, I mean, obviously this is a value statement. A lot of people would disagree. Capitalism promotes people in the sense that it has created a consumer world that states that if there is demand for a thing by people, um, it's not really looking at the planet as the, the judgment there, then we need to create and produce more of that thing for people to consume. And it makes sense from an environmentalist perspective that in that setting, what is the worth of a human? Well, if you look into the philosophy of it, the worth of a human is its consumer of hoarding resources. And there's even movies made about this, and there, I've heard some people outright stated that humans are a parasite to the planet, that we are a virus taking up all these resources and hoarding onto them just so that way we can have some larger fictitious number of a net asset or wealth number. 
and it doesn't actually do anything. And so the conclusion is what is sacred and is important is to defend and protect the planet from the harm that of humans are destroying. But then vice versa, right? If you live in um, – well, I, I should just pause there because um, if you have any, any thoughts on that, do you relate to that viewpoint or do you strongly disagree with that viewpoint or do you not want to out yourself to your audience? Well, in terms of environmentalism, I want to put myself in the not shoes of those that are on the $10 a day kind of deal – Personally, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't really care about the environment as long as I can feed my family. Because as far as I'm concerned, those snobs earning 20k don't care about me, so why should I care about the environment? If those guys on 20k really care, then they should be sending some some of that food down my road. So I, I don't think the developing world, on an individual atomic level, would care more too much about the environment. It would have to be sort of controlled by the, the government uh, in terms of the population yeah I've heard stuff like isn't the, the Georgia Guidestones or something some somewhere in some part of America saying we should get the world population down below like 300 million or something like that ooh and uh, giving away my cards I'm a human maximalist so yeah. that is a very terrifying Methusian argument um, Malthus was the person who um, created a mathematical model to show that overpopulation is going to destroy us. And that was in the 1800s. And obviously I'm biased against Malthus. And the reason why I'm biased against Malthus is because I have the pretentious snobbery to claim that science and math and technology um, is a morally superior view in the world. And 10 years later, after Malthus um, had presented his mathematical model, um, somebody else produced a, a mathematical model that showed that the rapid development in technology very quickly outpaces the the burden or the increased population. In fact, increased population led to more collaboration, which led towards more industrial development and um, larger problems being able to be solved more quickly. And the most notable example that then happened, I think, within 30 years of that is the, the man who's called the man who saved a billion lives. I Let me do a quick Google. I forget. Um, I should know his name. Norman Borlaug. Right. So if you just Google a man who saved a billion lives, I knew it was something B, but I didn't want to um, misspeak. Is was, that how do you spell? On you go. N o r m a n space b o r l a u g. So he developed something that, again, this is triggering probably for a lot of people, uh, including me, because I would buy this product. He developed genetically modified food. Specifically, I think it was wheat, corn. That was genetically modified corn or wheat that could survive growing in harsher environments because billion people or more were dying from 
potato famines and there not being enough food. Um, just, just, I mean, even at a global supply level, not a local supply level. So he created genetically modifiable food that has then been able to measurably save countless numbers of people such that we can now um, handle a much, 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 much larger population. But we have since forgotten how important GMO, non-organic food, and again, I love organic food. So please don't think I'm, I'm trying to present the options and the reasonings and the history behind a lot of the controversies and debates and biases and presuppositions that I have had and other people have had. We've forgotten why GMO food was presented to the point that we vilify um, genetically modified food as being unnatural, Frankenstein. Um, messing with nature, pretending and playing to be God. And who are we to know how that's going to impact our wealth? i uh, sorry, our, our health, our physiological functionings. It's leading to these diseases, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't mean blah, blah, blah disrespectfully. I, I mean it in like, well, actually, yeah, maybe we, we don't know how many diseases it, it has caused as a result. We do know that it's caused a lot of obesity and that's led to all sorts of um, health problems globally. But, it, but it's fascinating, right? Because when we don't understand the empathic response of a certain piece of technology that was used to prevent the damage and loss of your own family members, your daughter, your son, your mother, your, your friends that you would barbecue with, that you would have laughs with, that you would have giggles with, that are dying because of this famine. <laughs> Once we live in a state of privilege, it is so easy for us to look down and make moral judgments about how evil other people are for destroying nature, creating a fat society just for the sake of um, wealth and profit. Now, I'm going to then, after having made that statement, end with, well, the companies that use that technology have certainly probably forgotten their original mission and over time have evolved to use that position of power and wealth and knowledge to abuse people. So I'm not going to say that um, today these companies are innocent well, we all either. Who that company is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I... I'm a huge proponent of a thing called open source, which is you give away all of your intellectual property. You give away um, anything that, and yet again, this is a trigger word of discovered with people, anything that is post-scarce. So ideas are post-scarce. Movies are post-scarce. Digital content is effectively post. I'm a huge proponent forcing post-scarce goods to become um, modeled in scarcity settings because that just does create, I think, abusive, exploitative situation. <clears throat> Disney. How do you... Okay, I, I can understand about genetic modified food, but how do you make a, a big budget movie with 
in, in a post-scarce way? Well, there's a couple things that you could do, which is you can make, make the big budget movie and they already partner with cinemas to create scarcity of seats and timing windows, which I think is the right approach, and pay off the the movie from that. Um, you don't have to release it to everybody. You could also slash your movie costs in half by not spending Disney a half billion dollars carrot and sticking people with advertisements of how you're going to get an emotional high in the same way that if you take caffeine from Starbucks or Coke from a drug dealer, by going to our movie, you're going to get this emotional response and an experience of entertainment. If, if a lot of these companies just didn't advertise and manipulate people with these carrots and sticks, well, then their budgets would be a lot less. But wait, oh, if we don't create a zombie populace and direct them towards spending money on us, then nobody goes and sees the movie. I mean, we just kind of know this about human psychology. If people don't know about it, um, or even if they know about it and they hate it, they're more likely to choose something that they know and hate over something that they don't even know exists. Um, And that's oftentimes why in the U.S. we have a bipartisan system where people will choose the lesser of two evils because they don't know about these alternatives because the alternatives don't have the same sort of PR marketing campaign. So we can't magically fix human psychology in that sense, at least in my view. I think there's economic incentives we can change. So sorry, I got off on that rant. So rewinding back to how do you create the big budget movie? Well, um, I think it's fair to license it to um, television channels where the television channel is over time, you know, paying high price because then the television channel makes money off of advertisements and they then show the movie. So there's plenty of business models that Hollywood already uses today that will get them a profit. In fact, I've, um, if you want to really get down to the math of it, you can even Oh, no, I'm just going to save that for a, a, a few minutes from now because it's too fascinating. Um, there's plenty of profit that is already made with existing business models. The issue is what Disney and all industries do if they're interested in the incentive of making money, being richer than other people and lording that over other people, um, is the use all business models simultaneously in parallel to exploit and extract as much profit as they can. Um, now again, I'm not anti uh, hmm. problems in socialism and there's problems in capitalism. So I can make just as many about, uh, socialism. So there's, there's plenty of models in which movie, the movie industry is able to make profit without, um, creating in the U.S. DMCA and punishable by quarter million fine and thrown in prison if you pirate a movie um, laws. So there's, there's plenty of things we can do that are, are not... Or Monsanto, if a farmer grows a plant and that plant... <laughs> as nature does, produces a seed 
that the farmers literally have to throw that seed away or pay a fee or a fine to Monsanto for that um, for that seed because that seed is a genetically engineered seed. Right. Can I jump into uh, everybody loves movies? So can I jump into the math on that? Yeah, yeah. First, I want to hear your thoughts on, yeah, the the back and forth of these conflicts and the values judgments and these forgotten lores and these forgotten histories and then problems resurfacing and then rebellions and um, revolts against uh, corruption that has happened. Uh, Any... I pull up the math. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, one Santo seems to me like it's really taking the mickey. Uh, you know, there's got this dependency on their crops. They've got the soils made for the specific types of seeds, and then if they want to go to other, you know, they have to adjust the soils, and you know, that's, if they can't want to get off those seeds. So, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I don't know how much money goes into making those seeds. If it's billions and billions and billions, like the pharmaceutical, then I can understand why one Santo wants to protect their investment. You know. But from what I've, from what documentaries I've watched on like Netflix and stuff, then it seems like it's taking the mickey a little bit. But yeah, I'm not insider, so I can't say for sure that what they're doing is wrong. But it seems interesting, anyway. Put it that way. Do not empathize with Monsanto. I look forward to making sure that um, laws and people revolt against. Obviously, yeah, maybe I can't state this publicly because i'm uh, i i I look forward to open source open source um uh, genetically modified and organic food um but i'm gonna very quickly play devil's advocate here and say if the jewel have created a technology that has saved a billion people's lives why do you not deserve why do you not deserve some reward for that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, so, on Monsanto. I mean, I, I think Monsanto acquired the the IP and the technology from Norman Borlaug, who originally uh, created. I don't. Um, I, I don't know the actual history there, but but I mean, there, you could sympathize. You could you could potentially empathize with these these individuals that they've done something so meaningfully impactful to society so why shouldn't they defend their ability to um to be rewarded if you did the same wouldn't wouldn't you want to also yeah, if i was a shareholder i certainly want them to make more and more profit all right so here's the crazy thing about movies uh this is not freeism which was uh i i think i discussed some of the math of that last time yeah this is a thing that um i'm trying to recall the name of it recall the name of it but it is an intermediate step between capitalism socialism and freeism digital goods that are uh post-scarce we can stream every single disney movie to effectively the entire world's population at pretty negligible costs. Obviously, there's some amount of 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 costs in bandwidth transfer, but we, it, it's if you do the math, it's extremely extremely cheap. Uh, 
I'd be more than probably happy to um, pay for the actual costs on that. Obviously, a lot of companies charge fees on top of that, but that this is the very math I'm going to um, switch for people. So there is this very popular show called or at least was popular. seems like everybody's forgotten about it now that it's a year or two later, called Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones is produced by HBO, which is owned by AT&T. Pretty sure it's owned by AT&T. HBO makes their money through subscriber content. Um, they don't, they just give you the show for free if you happen to be a subscriber. We know that HBO, to produce a single episode of Game of Thrones, spent, on average, rounding up, um, I have the numbers here, let me, um, there is... The numbers in front of me. That looks like, but maybe this is an old version of it. Um, I apologize for not being prepared. Um, Don't worry about me, it's a freaks along from podcast. So. That again? There's no, no worries, it's a long-form podcast, so breaks are good sometimes, let people think, catch up. <laughs> so, check. It was around $6 million for a single episode on average. Wow, that's and I don't know what feature film cost. Small feature film. Oh, no, no. A small future film would be sixty million. Okay. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that, those are the last numbers I saw. And I know that, um, and middle uh, production costs are is like 140 to 200 million dollars, and then like big, big, big movies like Disney and um, Tom Cruise uh, movies are like 600 million dollars or more. So. Because I remember Terminator, Terminator 2 being 100 million, but that was in 93 or something. Right. right. So there's, there's, let's round up to $7 million per episode. I think there was seven um, episodes per season. That's, um, you do the math, you wind up getting a budget of, uh, Here, you know what? Maybe I should just read through this because it never wound up getting published because it was considered slightly too controversial. Um, we can also do um, seven point season. I'm sorry. Um, I'm actually watching series, so well. Since I don't want to waste the time, since I'm just going to go off my memory, and it's it's probably got a pretty high 
error ratio. So let's assume that there's round up 10 episodes that are made in a season, and each one is not just 7 million. Okay, let's just round up to 10 million to make the math easy. 10 million per episode, 10 episodes is $100 million. Um, just so they need to make $100 million in order to pay off the production costs. And that's not talking about profit, and that's not talking about enough money to um, make the next uh, season. What I'm now going to do is how much money they're making on a subscriber basis, and they would have about 30 million people um, watch each episode. Not necessarily day of, not necessarily on launch night, but 30 million after you know a few weeks of people being able to catch up or a few months of their own subscribers. So let's assume that um, HBO's costs, subscriber cost is like $10 times 30 million people, um, $300 million um, uh, revenue. And then you, you minus $100 million of that to produce the show. Obviously, subscriptions and stuff, they have a ton of other content that they're making simultaneously. So don't think it's in, is- in isolation. It's not counting all the people who've pirated the movie. Okay, But what I want to now do is calculate from two approaches what is the median cost of from a workforce employment standpoint, from an economy standpoint, um, an hour of a person's time. I'm not talking about a skilled individual. I'm not talking about professional individuals. I'm just talking about on average from the economy. And there's two ways you can take this. You can take the world GDP and divide it by the world population. And the world GDP is roughly 89 million. uh, Sorry, 89 trillion. I apologize. 89 trillion. And there's roughly 8 billion um, population. So let's just round down to uh, 80 trillion divided by 8 billion. And when I ran the math with the actual stuff, I think the number was roughly a dollar and 27 cents um, per hour. Jeez, that's low. Very low. But that's for us as Western society, though, because we're used to like a minimum wage of $7 an hour. Oh, wait, I think that's up to like $14 an hour now from when, because of inflation and stuff when, when I was growing up. Um, I'm going to take worst case scenario of, the, of that terrible napkin math and, and round it down to not $1.27, but round it down to $0.99 cents per hour. There's another way you can calculate this, which is to look at um, minimum wage across first world, second world, and third world countries. And the, I think I have this up here. Minimum wage, including even the most impoverished third world countries, is roughly $3.87 an hour. And that's on a conservative side. So that's high for some countries and low for other countries. I want to be hyper-conservative and I'm going to just cut that in half. And that's roughly a dollar ninety-three cents, at least from where when I previously wrote this. I don't actually know if that... Please math check me because um, 
I'm not, it should all average out to roughly these same numbers. So if we cut that in half. It's, uh, I remember when I ran it getting something like a dollar and 34 cents. So I was very surprised that taking, um, minimum that the median of the minimum wage across first world and second world and third world countries uh, came out to be pretty close to the dollar 27 number of world GDP divided by um, divided by divided by um, population. So we get approximately the same number within the same dollar amount. So I'm still just going to be hyper-conservative and round both those things down to the 99 cents. So here's something fun. If we were to switch the way we measure wealth to time attention, not dollar attention, could HBO, with their same subscriber account, with their same view count, on their same produced show make just as much money, if not more, than what they are in the current economic setting. This is really fun because it turns out, um, yes. So let's run through that calculation. And this is talking about, and and remember, the the calculation of how much this staring at a brick wall um, mount per hour some of the math that we had to do, and maybe I'll just send you a link where I repost the actual numbers so people can math check me, um, is that's still assuming that people are working like eight hours, like some sort of eight hour shift at that um, $3.87 per hour um, number that was the median. And I'm trying to cost adjust per 24 seven hours. And again, I'm, I'm trying to look at uh, untalented jobs. So, Take, uh, no offense to hotel clerks, take something like the graveyard shift of a hotel clerk. Probably 80% of the time might be doing nothing. And so you're effectively, or uh, or even a security guard in um, a gated community. A lot of the time you're just there 24-7 yeah. um, being paid for it does show up. And it's worth it to these, these hotels. So it, that's a Great job to have. There's nothing against it. But um, it, I'm trying to figure out if like, we're literally just pay people to stare at a wall, <laughs> what is the current economic value of that? But even better, get them to stare at a TV screen where we can um, propagandize them. Oh, boy. That's a whole other level. So, so using existing economic terms, Translating into this new economy that I'm talking about, which is not freeism, um, but but is some of our thought experiments, we have roughly 99 cents per hour per person on HBO's existing viewership. Let's look at um, the calculation here. There, um, my numbers here show that they got. Uh, 7.9 million viewers. I previously said 30 million viewers, and I think the 7.9 million viewers was and and 30 million like you know live the live stream, and 30 million is after catch up. But since the numbers I have in front of me are are less than my previous setting, I'm used to conservative numbers. So if we take 7.9 million and we multiply that 
across the 9.5 hours of the entire season. Um, so that's, let's say, 10 episodes, each an hour each, uh, approximately. So that's 9.5 hours. And we then multiply that to the 99 cents. Uh, the number that we get is $74 million. Okay. This case is less than the $100 million cost. Again, we're being hyper-conservative on this. But I want to note that um, $74 million is existing subscriber count. So they're intentionally closing off how many people are allowed to watch Game of Thrones. People would pay for it. But if the way that we pay for stuff is by spending time, okay, there's going to be a lot more than 7.9 million people watching the show because you could effectively open source the TV show and let anybody watch it. In fact, HBO would have an economic incentive to get more people to stare at Game of Thrones because the more people that they have staring at Game of Thrones is going to be producing them um, a dollar uh, per hour per person staring. So to um, to the well, so first of all, I think it should be very interesting to people that that the numbers here roughly work out, even though it's a complete economic revolution. You could still have a lot of companies, including ones that a lot of people argue could not operate um, without DMCA and copyright and um, intellectual property and piracy laws. You'd actually have a society that is roughly equal to the one we have now, making the same amount of profit or costs. In fact, since the incentives are then changed, you could make a whole lot more money. What do you think is, uh, tell me, what do you think is the total number of people if they could watch Game of Thrones for free at any point in time? And and I'm not talking about if they watch it two or three times. I'm just saying one person. How many people on the planet do you think at some point would watch an entire season of Game of Thrones? Two billion? Two billion. So... Right, and people are going to say this is ludicrous, right? But if I take two billion, hundred thousand million billion, and I multiply it against what we just did before, the nine point five hours, and then multiply it by um, uh, ninety nine cents, the the amount of revenue HBO would make is hundred thousand million, eighteen point eight billion dollars, and it only cost them $100 million to make. So if we divide that by $100 million, they could pay off. The return on their investment is 188 times. That is, that is a larger return than um, the investors in Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and these other companies have gotten by, by I think, several orders of magnitude. So that profit that these companies have made off of the total audience that could watch for free without being guilt-tripped 
into watching pirated Game of Thrones or paying the $7 is also could be the the profit that HBO makes that they could make 188 other TV shows, 188 other seasons based off of the return on just that. And that's ignoring the return on, on profit, um, the investment of making those shows and then people watching it. So the math actually works out using the same math of the existing economy that if we were to switch over for digital goods to the system, it could work. And even organizations, companies, Disney governments, it's better for everybody. It's better for, better for the layperson. It's better for HBO. It's better for AT&T. It's better for, for governments. Now, obviously that's not taking into account scarce goods like cars and housing. Um, but if you want to hear about that, listen to the previous episode on, on freeism because we actually can do the math on, on those things as well. So either, either you're very, very quick at assimilating information or you have a lot of time to think about this stuff or it's both. Um, I used to think that, uh, I don't know how to answer that. Some of the tough times that I've been going through recently is discovering that a lot of people are offended by how I think or how fast I talk. Why you offended? Well, well, um, I, I, I'm a human maximalist, and I, I'm a huge optimist. And I've been going through some nihilism and depression lately because there's just take for granted, um, not just there's a lot of privilege that I have uh, growing up in the U.S., especially California, but there's just, I guess, some things that I took for granted on human behavior or how people think or make decisions. I was trained growing up that words are meant to communicate ideas. And in the last year, I've become disillusioned in realizing that words have nothing about communicating ideas. It has everything to do about communicating tribe and virtue signaling whether you're in somebody's tribe or not. And the only way that people, it seems as a whole, accept an idea is if it's close enough to their existing tribal thinking. And that's such a nihilistic and depressing thought that I've been trying to fight it for a very long time. Um, but it, it seems like the longer I go on, more have, I guess, alienated a lot of people on the internet because of the way I think. So I'm trying to change my language to I don't know. It's just something I've been struggling with lately. So nah, I don't, don't change your language. That's one of the reasons why you're on my show, man. That's why I like you. It's very sweet of you and very kind of you. Um, yeah, I, I hope the proper that, language, then they can just go away and ride their bike in a hillside or something, you know. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> nah, be yourself, I, mate. That's that's what I say. It's, uh... I appreciate that a lot, and I hope that 
there has at least been one thing, uh, if not many things that I've said that are either different or interesting or insightful or fascinating or inspiring. No, no, you're, you're unique. Uh, you're unique and, and gifted, and, yeah. and you got a lot of you got a message there, and I want that message to get out. I want people to hear this. So, um, I want people empowered to hear this as well. Because, you know, what if they have to reach us to this podcast or whatever other podcasts? Be good if like. If some people in to make decisions regarding the land can hear this stuff, um, because if they don't have the chance to think about it, then somebody like yourself who can articulate it could be helpful to. You know, I'm I'm a human maximum, as I says. I want I want people to do better, happier. You know, I would, I would rather people be more happy than less happy. So, to if to have an, an other opinion, I would rather have people down. That's like that would be evil, right? So, if we can do more good in the world, then that's. That's a responsibility. I agree. And I all, I've had the belief that every person listening to this show, a unique perspective on the world that could completely transform and improve and cause progress. And that some of the biggest battles we fight is a constant pressure from society that pushes us down, tries to suppress us, tells us to get in line to that or some brainwashing machine. And one of the biggest battles psychologically that we as humans experience is this constant humming just trying to beat us down and telling us that we're not unique that we're not special but i genuinely have believed that every person listening has something and is intended for family, their friends, their community, but also the world as a whole. Um, and the most important message is to people to speak up and talk about changing ideas and then devote their life to making it happen in the face of all odds, in the face of all haters, in the face of of all depression and nihilism and pandemics to keep the good fight moving forward. Yeah, sorry if my audio is a bit uh, flaky right now. I don't know if it's my... my, my, my Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. We... Uh, it's good to get these things off your chest, you know. And um, thank you so much for for having me on the show. I I super appreciate it. That was Mark Nadal, and uh, thank you for joining me, my listener, on Influencers Cafe. We hope you uh, managed to uh, assimilate all information. I recommend you listen to this podcast at least five times uh, because uh, I will. Thanks for watch, uh, listening, and see you again shortly. Bye bye.